Welcome to this podcast from Central, Jesus at the Heart. More information is available from www.jesusattheheart.org. When I said that I was becoming a professional footballer, some of you looked at me so trustingly and so believingly that I felt really bad. Oh, wow, he's going to become... Oh, he's joking. Ah. So, um, so sorry. We're, um, we're in the final part of, of a series that we've called Last Words. So if you've got Bibles, we're, we're going to come at this from um, John chapter 20. We've called it Last Words because we're looking at, at the last words of Jesus. So we'll be looking at the kind of back end of the book of John, one of the Gospels, which tells us something of the story of Jesus' life. And when we come to chapter 20, we've we've obviously just come past chapter 19. In chapter 19, Jesus was hung on a cross, and he he was crucified, and he died. And then in chapter 20, as we'll read, you maybe know the next bit of the story in that, that he's risen again. That's what happens in this chapter. And of course, we know, we know that that's how the story goes, but, but we, all we get to read in chapter 20 is, is the first disciples, the first people around Jesus' life discovering this. So it's quite an exciting time. Because up until this point, they've been completely hopeless. That the Savior that they thought was the Savior, the Messiah that they thought was the Messiah, has died. And so they're hopeless. And then, and then some of this happens. All they know so far as we read this is that his body is gone. They found the empty tomb and they've assumed that someone's stolen his body. And then we read in John 20 from from verse 10. Then the disciples went back to their homes. So they came, they found the empty tomb, they realized it was empty but the grave clothes were still there. How curious that this body has disappeared. Almost adding insult to injury. Our savior has died and his body has been stolen. But Mary stood outside the tomb crying. As she wept, she bent over to look into the tomb and saw two angels in white, seated where Jesus' body had been, one at the head and the other at the foot. They asked her, woman, why are you crying? They have taken away my Lord, she said, and I don't know where they have put him. At this, she turned round and saw Jesus standing there, but she did not realize that it was Jesus. Woman, he said, why are you crying? Who is it you were looking for? Thinking he was the gardener, she said, Sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have put him, and I will get him. Jesus said to her, Mary. She turned towards him and cried out in Aramaic, Rabbanai, which means teacher. Jesus said, Do not hold on to me, for I have not yet returned to the Father. Go instead to my brothers and tell them, I am returning to my father and your father, to my God and your God. Mary Magdalene went to the disciples with the news, I have seen the Lord, and she told them what he had said, that he had said these things to her. On the evening of that day of the week when the disciples were together with the doors locked for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood among them and said, peace be with you. After he said this, he showed them his hands and sighed. The disciples were overjoyed when they saw the Lord. Again, Jesus said, peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, I am sending you. And with that, he breathed breathed on them and said, receive the Holy Spirit. 
If you forgive anyone his sins, they are forgiven. If you do not forgive them, they are not forgiven. Let me pray for us. Father, we we pray that you would speak to us through what we've just read. We pray that you would give us new revelation, and I pray that you'd help us uh, to live in light of that revelation. We pray that you'd come, and, and in this time, by your Holy Spirit, you'd change our minds and our hearts, and that you'd help us to live with our full weight upon the changes that you've brought. Amen. So as we read there, um, Jesus has returned. He's returned, and, and yet, almost straight away, he doesn't just say, come on, guys, gather around. He, he's, he kind of calls them, and then he, he sends them out almost instantly. It's bizarre how that happens. I was, um, I was reading, and, and so we'll, we'll kind of look at this passage, especially through, through the verse and, and Jesus' kind of commission to his disciples, as the Father has sent me, I am sending you. That's kind of the hinge that we're going to look at especially. I was reading this week about Islam. And Islam, if you didn't know, is the, is the fastest growing religion in the UK. And it's especially growing amongst a certain part of the population, which is young men. And, and I thought, that's really interesting. That's really curious. I wonder why. And so read a bit more into it. And, and it turns out that the reasons that they give for, for so many young men converting who've, who maybe have no faith or from another faith to Islam is because apparently Islam offers them a challenge that no other faith will. It offers them something to really live for. That's what it says. Also this week, yesterday, I was out with a friend and, and chatting to some other people about what they thought about the church. It was really interesting. I had some really interesting conversations with people asked complete strangers, when you think about the church, what do you think about? And some of their answers were things like hypocritical, boring. I mean, some of them were really positive. But, but something that kept coming up again and again and again was dull and boring. And so I, I kind of held these two things in tension. Islam is the fastest growing in religion in the UK because it offers a challenge and it offers something to really live for. And the church is perceived at large by by our communities as dull and boring. And so my my hope and my desire this evening is that wherever you come at this and and however you come into this place this evening, we might might realign something of actually who Jesus is with, with those two opinions. Because I think Jesus has been misrepresented. I think actually if if you think that the church is those things then, then we haven't really got to grips with what this passage is saying because, because in this passage it suggests that Jesus is so much more than this. Some of his final words, as the Father has sent me, I am sending you. That's a radical statement. And so we're going to unpack it. And so whether tonight you're sat here and you're a Christian and you're thinking, okay, as the Father has sent me, I'm going to be sent. What does it mean for me to be sent by Jesus? That's what we're going to look at. And if you're not a Christian and you're here tonight, maybe brought along by a friend, or just kind of maybe trying to figure out, you know, is God real, answering some of those questions, hopefully tonight will help you to figure out for yourself, what does it mean to follow Jesus? Because this is, this is what it's unpacking here. And so we're going to look at this idea of, of sentness, of being sent by Jesus. Here's the, here's the chain of thought in the, in the passage. Jesus was sent by God into the world. In fact, my favorite thing about Jesus is that he came into the world. And then Jesus saves the world 
in 19 and, and chapter 20, Jesus takes the sins of the world and takes them on the cross. He wins the victory, he conquers death, he rises from the grave. And then those who would put their trust in him no longer belong to the world, but they belong to Christ. So Jesus sends them back into the world. And I think that's the point where we sometimes get stuck, that Jesus would send us back into the world, not just in to a holy club, but back out from that place into the world. Mary offers a beautiful picture of this. Mary is totally hopeless. She, she weeps at the empty tomb. I love that the angels and Jesus both ask her, why are you weeping? Why are you weeping? Don't you realize the tomb is empty? But she obviously doesn't realize. And she discovers Jesus. Jesus reveals himself to her by speaking her name. He calls her by name. He says, Mary. And instantly, Rabbanai, teacher, Jesus. She discovers him. And he says, you know, I don't know what you'd expect to happen at that moment. I don't know what you'd expect if you, if you, if you suddenly met someone who you thought maybe was the gardener and it turns out it was your friend who died three days ago. I don't know what you'd do in that situation if you met that, that person. But, but, but Jesus says to her, do not hold on to me. Other versions say, do not cling to me. Not quite get lost, but do not hold on to me. Do not cling to me. Go instead to my brothers and sisters and tell them. So she goes to the disciples and tells them. And she says, I have seen the Lord. See, as soon as she discovers what, what's happened to Jesus, that he's rose again, she's instantly compelled outwards. She's instantly compelled to go and share with others. Wow, this has happened. And so Mary goes and tells the others. And, and it's a risky thing for Mary to do. Because Mary's the only one so far who has seen the risen Jesus. And yet she's the one who has to go to all the guys and tell them that Jesus has risen. That's a dangerous thing to do. Because at this stage in history, women couldn't even testify in court. So if you were a woman and you witnessed a murder, you couldn't testify to that as a witness. Because you were a woman. And so she goes and she's sent to share the news with the others. I mean, I'm sure there must have been a fear of rejection when she gets to this group of guys. And we don't even actually find out in that bit of Bible we just read whether they believe her or not. We don't. It's not until the next bit when Jesus appears to them in, in their presence that they then react to it. I wonder, where, um, I wonder where you've been sent before. I've been sent off. I've been uh, sent to the headmaster's office. I remember being sent to the headmaster's office. I was 14 and um, sat in school, sat in registration, and we thought it would be a really good idea, a really funny idea, to put my friend in the roof of the classroom, as you do on a Monday morning. And it was a bit like, I don't know if you've seen the kind of artificial ceilings, though. there's like roof tiles that you can push upwards. You know what I mean? You get them in office blocks or in classrooms. Well, we realized that you could push these roof tiles up and potentially someone could get up into the roof. So my friend, who was part volunteering and part being shoved into a roof by a group of other people, was, was forced up into the roof. I thought, this will be brilliant. This is teenagers. I don't know what we were thinking. This is going to be brilliant. So we put him up in the roof, and we sealed off the roof with the roof tile, and then we sat down at the back of the classroom. Kind of that eerie silence where the teacher comes in and instantly knows that something's up because they're too quiet. So the teacher came in, 
took a seat and was instantly suspicious. We're giggling at the back of the room and a little bit of a shuffle overhead. Oh, he's up there. She doesn't know he's up there. Giggling away to ourselves. And then he fell through the roof, <laughs> bringing a couple of the tiles down with him, landed backwards on a desk. Pretty big drop, yeah. And so, um, and so we were rumbled. All, all four or five of us got sent to the headmaster's office. And I remember standing outside the headmaster's office thinking two things. First thing I thought was, that was absolutely brilliant. How funny was that? I was 14. Um, and if there's one takeaway point from my sermon tonight, it's that you should try it. Because it's really funny. No, don't do that. Don't do that. But if you are in an office block or a classroom with the ceiling... Um, so, so we were standing outside. But the other thing I thought was, was that sense of, I don't know if you've been in that position, where you know you're going to get told off. You know there are going to be consequences, but you, you're not sure what they are yet. So there's a kind of feeling of nervousness, of kind of, oh, thinking through in your head, how do I get out of this? Or how do I pin this on somebody else? How, do I, how does somebody else take the blame rather than me? And I think, I think so often... We feel the same kind of nervousness when the Bible talks about going or being sent. We think, oh no, that's bad. That's an authority figure punishing us. So often we just want to get clingy with Jesus. We don't want to be sent. We just want to hang out with Jesus. We just want to learn more. We just want to get more information. We just want to have an amazing worship experience. We want to come into the cozy Christian club. We don't want to go out and be sent. I think, I think for most of us, there's a fear of, of losing something. Actually, we, we like it in here, and in here it's safe. I don't know about you, but I have, I have three locks on my front door. I want to minimize risk in my life. I do live in a dodgy part of town as well, but often we're so concerned with safeguarding our own comfort, of looking after ourselves. I, how do I make myself less vulnerable? How do I make myself less open? And Jesus comes in and says, as the Father has sent me, I am sending you, and absolutely smashes it. And look right at me. That's a good thing. That's a good thing. Because you see, there's the single greatest moments of joy and of passion in my life have been when I've been sent by Jesus. In those, it's one of those kind of, you know, the crazy kind of upside down kingdom ideas that Jesus sometimes talks about. He says, if you want to gain your life, you've got to lay it down. If you want to find purpose and meaning, you can't stay here, you've got to go. You've got to be sent. Maybe we've got a wrong picture of Jesus. Sometimes I think we think of Jesus as an all-you-can-eat buffet, when really he's more of a traveling companion. He wants to send us. He wants to go with us on the journey. And maybe, maybe we've bought into the lie that when we go, when we're sent, we leave Jesus behind. Maybe that's, that's what's holding us back. Maybe that's what's holding me back. But actually when he says, as the Father has sent me, I am sending you, it's a continuation of what he's already begun. He's not saying, go start your own mission. He's saying, why don't you come and join me in my plans for the transformation of the world? Why don't you come with me? Which doesn't mean that there's no sacrifice involved. Because if I said that, I'd be lying. It does mean giving some things up. 
It means giving up my mission for his mission. It means being willing to let go of my individual goals to become part of something bigger than myself. You know, if we're going to sort of stop playing at church and become the kind of movement that will change the world, we need to learn to be sent as Jesus was sent. And, and you don't have to be sent to Africa to be a sent one of Jesus. Where does Jesus want to send us? Honestly, he wants to send you to the person next to you and to the ends of the earth. That's where he wants to send you. And anywhere in between and everywhere in between. See, what if we, we thought of this, I guess it, it requires a change in perspective. But what if I begin to see myself as a sent one of Christ around my everyday life? Actually, I don't need to go somewhere new or begin something new. But when Jesus says, as the Father has sent me, I am sending you. We said, okay, I'm going to be a sent one. I will be sent by Jesus to my workplace, to my family, to my neighborhood, to my school. I've got a friend who, who recently took up that challenge. He'd been living in the same neighborhood for about 10 years. And he decided, I'm going to begin to see myself as a missionary, a local missionary to my neighborhood. He lived in the same street for so many years, and yet he just simply began to adopt that mindset. And he began to see change. He was telling me recently the amazing difference it's made. Relationships where it would have just been a passing, fleeting wave have become so much more meaningful. People have opened up. He was saying it feels like real community. And he was saying as well, personally, he's never been more excited about Jesus. Because he's been learning to depend on Jesus as he's been sent out. And so let's look for a minute as well. How was Jesus sent? If he's saying what it means to be a Christian is that you're sent just as Jesus was sent. How was he sent? Well, I don't know if you ever thought about this, but, but I bet it took a lot for Jesus to come to earth. He was in heaven, and he chose to come to earth. If I were him, I wouldn't have. But we read in Philippians 2 that being in very nature God, he did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant being made in human likeness and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. Jesus put on flesh and moved into the neighborhood. That's what it meant for him to be sent. See, he didn't consider equality with God something to be grasped, but he became a servant. He made himself nothing he took on human form. I mean, think about this for a minute. God, God himself chose to enter into his creation. He chose to get his hands dirty and come and live. And Jesus lived. Jesus, Jesus lived for more than 30 years. And he, you know, he had all the same range of emotions that you and I have had. And he, he lived, for most of it, a pretty normal life. He didn't commute from heaven for his miracles. He didn't hide out in a holy green room and then arrive. Is it time for the Sermon on the Mount? He was there amongst the people. And Jesus sends us out in the same way. To put on flesh. To go deep. To invest long term. 
Jesus would not have made a good Edinburgh neighbor. Because my understanding of, of a good Edinburgh neighbor is someone who keeps themselves to themselves and lives behind closed doors. Jesus would have been terrible at that because he was constantly in and out of people's lives, most of the time kind of wrecking them. He would have been a terrible Edinburgh neighbor because Jesus wasn't respectable. And, and so it, it's hard for us to think about how, how do I go deep in a culture that is so shallow? You know, I have a thousand Facebook friends but can still feel isolated and lonely. It's a shallow culture. To be truly known to others I don't know about you, but I can, find, I can find it too easy sometimes just to hold people at arm's length. Or, or actually, just to let in the people that are like me, the safe people. You know, I can, I can surround myself with, with cozy, nice, safe people. But that's not what Jesus did. Jesus didn't surround himself with people who wouldn't challenge or offend his views. And Jesus calls us to more of the same. He calls us to the place of his plans, not the place of our convenience. And people were constantly complaining about who Jesus spent his time with. That's what it means to be sent. That's how Jesus was sent. Perhaps we need to learn what it means to be sent to the broken, to the needy, to the poor. I don't know what it looks like for you, but recently God has been sending me to some unlikely places. Recently, uh, a couple of weeks ago, I went to my friend's boxing match, which was an unlikely place for me to be. You might have read about it. It made the evening news um, because whilst a fight was happening in the ring, which is what you go to see at a boxing match, a fight was also happening outside the ring at ringside. People were picking up chairs and throwing them and fighting. And the best part for me, I don't mean best part, but the best part really, I was, I was safe up on a balcony looking over this was one of the boxers left his match in the ring, jumped off the edge of the ring to join in the fight that was happening outside the ring. It was mental. It was, it was such an uncomfortable place to be. It was absolutely sex and muscles. Being in another culture, totally out of my comfort zone. Choosing to put myself in a place of vulnerability. And, and in the midst of that, to recognize the image of God in others. In the midst of that, to call out the good. To be able to say to my friend, actually, you should be proud of yourself. Because in the midst of all this chaos, you conducted yourself honorably. My friend's too nice to be a boxer. To speak something of the love, the truth, the power of Jesus into every area of the city. I think that's what God's calling us to. To be his sent ones. And and when we get there, and when we get there, we're to go like Jesus. So we're sent. We're sent to go deep, but when we get there, well, when we get there, there's not much use going if we get there and just blend in. C.S. Lewis wrote that every Christian is to become a little Christ. The whole purpose of becoming a Christian is simply nothing else. We are to be little Christs, to be Jesus where we are. The word used in, in John 20 for the first sent ones is saliah, which means messenger of Jesus. To carry Jesus. Alan Hirsch puts it this way. He says, be who Jesus would be if he were you. Be who Jesus would be if he were you. 
do the things that Jesus did in the way that he did them. That's what God calls us to. He says, be like me, imitate me, be like Jesus. In fact, the whole purpose of becoming a Christian is simply nothing else. And if you know Jesus, if you know Jesus, you know that's, that's an absolutely terrifying proposition because Jesus did some crazy stuff. People responded to Jesus extremely. And, and as far as I can work out, they responded to him in one of three ways. They hated him and killed him. They were terrified of him and ran away. Or they were absolutely smitten by him, loved him and would die for him. And Jesus says, go into the world and be just like me. No thanks. I want people to like me. Most people who were open to Christianity, most of the people I spoke to yesterday when I was chatting to them on, on the streets were, were open to Christianity. And they said, oh, well, I quite like the idea of Jesus. You can't like Jesus. Jesus is probably the most unlikable person to ever live. You love him or you hate him. And yet, I get the desire to be passive. I get the desire to, to go lightly or take the nice stuff. You know the nice stuff? The nice stuff that Jesus did. did. To take those things and try and pass them on when I can. But Jesus says, well, take, take the whole package and try that. And Jesus did do some, just like if you think about it, apparently if someone did this to you, you'd be horrified. He meets a woman and he just starts calling out all the dodgy relationships she'd had in her past. Complete stranger. He meets, he meets a guy who's blind and he spits on his hands and makes mud paste and then rubs it on his eyes. That is a seriously awkward conversation if that guy doesn't get healed. Oh, uh, oh, you're still blind. Okay, uh, sorry for spitting on your face. But Jesus says, be like me. I don't see much boring in that. Being obedient to God is incredibly dangerous. And so in my fear, my fear of offending people, I think I need to learn to adopt the mind of Christ. Who, who chose not to grasp onto equality with God, but became a servant. He came to serve and not be served. Often my nervousness is because I want people to like me. I don't give them Jesus. I give them me with some Jesus nice bits thrown in. But if I'm, if I'm more interested in how people respond to me, if I'm more interested in how grateful they are, then maybe I'm making it more about me and how it makes me feel than about the people I'm supposed to be going to serve. That wasn't Jesus' style. Jesus gives us a choice. It's like that scene at the end of the Matrix. Not the end, somewhere in the middle, beginning of the Matrix. Do you know the scene where he gets a choice? Blue pill, green pill, whatever color they are. I clearly haven't done my research on the Matrix. It's somewhere near the middle end and the pills are various colors that are different. But one pill, one pill you take, and he says, and Morpheus says to Neo, you take this pill, and you wake up in your bed tomorrow morning like nothing has happened, and you can go on and you can live your life. But the other one, you take the other one, and you get to see just how deep the rabbit hole goes. You get to see the truth. You get to keep going. You get to come on adventure. You risk. The other one's safe, and you numb out. But this one's risky. I think Jesus offers us a choice. 
He says safety and comfort and passivity, lukewarmness, boring. The kind of thing that's not really worth living for or risk and challenge. Something to really live for, to be a sent one. I'd love it if we could just close our eyes, each of us where we are. Because I think for each of us, this begins with Jesus. So with eyes closed, maybe you just want to, with your eyes closed, picture Jesus. Picture Jesus as you see Jesus. See, Mary was, Mary was absolutely helpless until Jesus called her name. But once he identified himself to her, well, then she was desperate to share the news with others. And I think more and more in our lives, our eyes will go to the helpless when we realize that we were helpless and that we are helpless without Christ. Because if we think that Jesus was lucky to have us, or if we think that he saved us because he needed our expertise, no. We need to understand our own helplessness without Christ and move out into a world that needs him. And so praying about this, I think there are three, maybe three types of people here tonight. Some of us, I think, need to meet the sender. We need to meet Jesus. We need to acknowledge that we're helpless without him and allow him to send us out to helpless people. For some of us, I think we need to let go. We need to let go of our own mission, the mission that we've been trying to live. Let go of our independence. Let go maybe of our desire for comfort as our highest end. You know, you were made for more than being secure and comfortable. And some of you, I think tonight, a third group perhaps, are right in the midst of all this stuff and need the reassurance that God is with you, that Jesus walks before you on the road. So let me pray for us. I'd love it if we could stand together. Would you stand with me? So Heavenly Father, we ask you to to send your spirit. Spirit, would you speak to us? Would you perhaps even put your finger on the one thing tonight that you would prompt us on, the one thing that you would speak to us about, the one thing that you've been saying. And I pray, God, that you'd give us courage, courage to respond to that one thing that you've been saying to us. Courage not just to hear it, but to respond in whatever way that, that's right for us tonight. So Holy Spirit, would you come and would you give us a picture of Jesus that would compel us outwards. We recognize that this begins with you, Jesus. And where we've been clingy, where we've wanted to just sit at your feet, and we pray, God, that you'd send us. Would you break our hearts for helpless people? Amen.